don't have to like everything we say. You don't have to listen to us. And you shall receive. That come in the Bible, I don't remember. Or was it Santa? It didn't fall through on that. It was Santa. So Russia and Ukraine. It has been over a year, and I thought I should answer some questions I got because they remind me of questions I had over a year ago that I answered not on here but in person. But understanding uh, kind of the tactics and warfare. What's history say? What's history look like? What's warfare look like? What does a war look like? What's long-term warfare look like? Is this long-term warfare? Do we know that? Who's going into debt? Who's really winning and who's really losing? Because it's actually been the same answer since the beginning on who's really losing and who's really winning. What are the political outcomes? How does the war end? What does victory look like? Is anybody being baited into this thing? Is it a proxy war? Is it not? We got many questions to answer, and I'm going to give you the answers, well, right now. Just a few minutes right here in Gray Man, hiding in plain sight. So what's going on over there? A lot, actually. Both sides are liars and both sides are corrupt. That's We should start with that. There seems to be... <laughs> Whoa, almost knocked my mic off. You got to see my fancy mic stand. <laughs> I was reading some stuff the other day and it was, I, was just, I couldn't believe... I actually did a search on it. Like, people really talking about this? This idea about who's more corrupt. And it, it's funny. It was like... Let me start at the end. The idea of arguing over who's more corrupt... Ukraine or Russia is like arguing over who's more corrupt in the United States, Republicans or Democrats. Like the only reason you think one side isn't is because you're so in love and enamored with that side and your confirmation bias is out of control and you're not being objective about it. They're fucking corrupt. Like people know about Russia, a lot about what Russia has done throughout history and even in this war. And then the conscripts, which is a forced entrance into the military, it's a... Uh, different and not different than the draft in certain ways and then what people don't even realize is if you talk to some people that were refugees from ukraine before the war even started there was military-aged men they weren't allowing to leave because they needed them to fight there's been some videos released about certain towns where they like tie these dudes up in the streets strip them naked and beat the crap out of them even kill them that's in ukraine they're corrupt you know, this, this whole idea that because it was the first democratically, free democratic election in a former Soviet republic and that they're trying to be now part of NATO or the European Union and all this other stuff, and that magically makes them holy is insane. You know, um, 
one of the most well-known democracies and youngest countries on this planet is one of the most corrupt called the United States. So you got to get rid of that idea. But looking at what's going on, there's some things to understand because I got some questions I'm going to answer. And it was funny because about, I don't know, it was about a year ago, probably June or July, I was in Montana. I was actually in Kalispell, I think. And I talked to David Robertson for like an hour and a half on the phone. And a couple of these things he had brought up and I was like, no, that's not right. And I explained it to him and he understood. And I guess, I guess had I been recording things back then, I probably would have, would have said these things then to get people to understand. Because these are not rational thoughts of anybody who understands history or warfare, especially modern history and is being objective, doing research and ignoring things like confirmation bias or outcome bias, these types of things, you know people that are thinking about outcomes and not what's actually happening. So looking at this, because the first one that came to mind was this one, this is the one I remember David talking about, but it was that there's, I don't know if it's a conspiracy they think or a secret plan or something else is going on. Russia has this bigger, further agenda that's going to happen, right? It has to happen soon because they haven't committed all of their forces. And, it was probably the most ridiculous thing to me, but then I started thinking about, well, people don't, you know, always understand this stuff. So even going beyond modern history, nobody commits all their forces to anything. Nobody does that wants to remain a country. It doesn't happen. You have to go back like ancient history, things like Hannibal going through the Alps and losing all the elephants, but the one I think that made it. Or or some of these other like the Mongol hordes, maybe them, I don't even know enough about them. Some of these large groups, maybe Alexander the Great and how they conquered large parts of the world, it just took most of their life and there wasn't a lot of information, wasn't a lot of people, wasn't a lot of travel. And that's kind of how warfare was fought. But even in the history of the United States, we've never, since we've, even before we existed, we've never committed all of our forces to a war. And that includes 1812, French and Indian War, the American Revolution and the Civil War. We've never done it. You could argue that in the American Revolution, we committed all of our forces only because the war was fought in United States soil and all of our forces were here. But they weren't all actively committed in fighting into that war, although they were doing things because the war was in our country, including security and activities that supported the war. So I, go, I suppose you could argue that one, but that would be the only reason why, because it was on our soil. But Civil War was here, 1812 was here, French and Indian War was here, didn't happen. Nobody does that. There's this belief that if Russia had done such a thing, that'd be more serious, that they would have taken Ukraine already and a whole bunch of other things. But it's not even true. It, it shouldn't even make sense to you because if you look at the sheer number, the 100,000 plus troops and whatever it was they put on the border, right? The amount of troops both sides have lost in the hundreds of thousands, okay? There's no competition. They've lost about equal numbers and it's very high, higher than what people are admitting. And they've had to replace those numbers. With the assets they had, the amount of numbers, it should have just happened, uh, realistically. Now, granted, I mentioned I mentioned this last summer about a year ago, or it was prior to a year ago, probably 12, 13 months ago, that, you know, I called, I'm not the only one who did this. I was agreeing with other people, but, so it's 23. So in the end of 21, I started nailing down, I mentioned this recently, when the war was going to happen because of the weather and stuff, when it would be late February, early March. It got to the point where I called it even a couple weeks out, it'll be in this window, and then it happened. And a lot of us thought this whole thing was going to go down in a couple of weeks. And then even after it didn't work out right away, we still kept thinking it was going to happen. And then I started getting on board with a few people that were looked at as crazy. It was like, 
I mean, as objective and as smart as I can be on things sometimes, think, just thinking about myself, was like I got caught up in this idea of what we knew and believed we knew about their capabilities. And, and this is bearing in mind, they'd been fighting wars for a while, fighting in wars and conflicts around the world. We've seen what they've done. We were aware of what Ukraine had. Granted, none of us forecasted the amount of resistance their own people would put up, but it's not enough to make a difference on its own. So it should have happened. Number two, if they committed all their forces, they wouldn't be a country anymore. Nobody with a brain in their head is going to commit all their forces. So I'll just use them as an example, but like look at the last 20, 25 years of warfare that we fought terrorism around the world. We didn't commit all of our forces. So anything I say in this, you can compare to somebody else in similar or same circumstances in any warfare, including the United States. If you're going to commit all your forces, right, almost all of them got to go there. They don't all have to go there, especially now with advanced computer system communications, but they need to move to other places from where they are in order to be involved in that aspect. So some things that would happen, you would probably unman a lot of installations that are not capable or strategically important enough to affect that war. So if you've got, because Asia's big, man. <laughs> if you've got places that don't have assets that can reach Ukraine, other than watch it on TV, they'll have to abandon those and give them up. They're not going to leave a skeleton crew there, remember, because we're going to commit all of our forces. Okay, so you have border locations of bases are strategic for different reasons. Some are for defense, border defense. Some are for offense. Some are because that's what's available at the time. Some's for secrecy and surveillance. Some's because of testing and what's there and what's been tested there before in order to protect the environment. You know, because you can't really, the environment's dead in a place. You can't make it any more dead. So we're going to keep doing all the dirty stuff there. There's all these different kinds of reasons. What about their military, their Navy, and other stuff around the world? They have to evacuate all that because they can't affect the war from there. Like, it's important to understand things about Russia and Ukraine, but most of what's being paid attention there is ludicrous and shouldn't be paid attention to. There's other bigger things people aren't paying attention to, and I don't mean like people that are trying to find out, the people that are the mouthpieces on Twitter or on the news talking about it. They're, they're going for what sells, what they think their customers want instead of what their customers probably really need. So one of the bigger things that people should be paying attention to they don't talk about anymore is the Arctic. Is one of the hottest spots on the planet. So with Finland and Sweden or whatever the two countries are, the second they started talking or even being considered publicly about NATO, that was going to cause a problem, and it did. Everybody knew. Like, it wasn't like, oh, my God, everybody freaked? No. What that means is when those conversations start, somebody's going to apply, somebody's going to accept it. It could take 20 years, but that's going to happen. That's a serious threat to Russia because that means every land-owning nation in the Arctic except Russia is or will be, or will be a NATO country. And they're going to have to give up all that, right? And a big part of what military does around the world has to do with resources, either natural resources or shipping and trade and securing waterways and securing different things, not to mention surveillance and all these other stuff. They have to give all that up anywhere their Navy is. They got to give all that up, right? Because they're not going to secure shipping and trade anymore because they need to go over to the Black Sea and the Mediterranean and focus on Ukraine, Right. Because they have to give that up. That's how we're going to commit all of our forces. Now, <laughs> this is a whole other further subject, but just touching on it a minute, those 300,000, 500,000, whatever new soldiers that got put in this year that people acted like was an escalation in this big thing that's literally been talked about almost every single month since the war started by Russia, by the way, just like we talked about all our, our major troop deployments for 20 years. You know, wasn't a shock. You just weren't paying attention if you thought it was. Okay, that... 
that can't happen. Or at least they can't get the training they do get anyway because all of our people that are training now at training bases and training and certifying, they have to go fight the war. So they're not going to train new people. Not to mention that I imagine, quote, quote, imagine, they do a lot of things similar to the United States military where there's processes to prepare for warfare or combat regularly or when it's going on and certifications and events and exercises you go to to have facilitators that are instructors or contractors or people that have been to the war or whatever, right? So that's all gone. That has to go away. So we lose all that benefit of training and bringing in new ideas and stuff because all those people can't be there. They need to be go. They need to go war. That's what they need to do. So we've given up our security. We've given up our, our sanity. We've given up strategic shipping lanes, places around the world. We, we, we don't have anything there to train people anymore. You know, all this stuff, we're not, we're pulling military assets out of embassies and consulates around the world. We're taking certain intelligence assets that are military intelligence, pulling them around the world because they're only going to focus on military stuff. And our regular, you saw it's like the GRU and like the FSB, they're going to focus on just Ukraine. They're like, they're going to give up on this other stuff because right, they're, they're not military, but they're part of our intelligence community and assets and we need them. So we're going to pull them too. Right. So that's, that's what that looks like. That's why that's insane. Nobody does. That's why we didn't do it. Okay. We sent a few FBI guys over to help the war effort. We didn't send them all. The entire intelligence community did not focus on the war. There was other places in the world. Okay, they didn't abandon certain desks in Langley to focus only on Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan. That would be retarded. We didn't abandon our bases, right? We didn't deploy all of our reserves and guard forces and active duty forces, just throwing numbers at it. Not to mention the money that costs, right? Let's talk about the money that it costs to make all these moves. Not to mention whatever you've put into the infrastructure of these places, if you abandon them, they're gone. I mean, do you, no matter how you think it happened or what really happened, look at Afghanistan. We give a bunch of stuff to the Afghan National Army. We leave. They get rolled over. Bad guys take their shit. Okay, there's not a lot of terrorists floating around in Russia right now trying to take the country over. But how quickly do you really think military bases with thousands upon thousands, even tens of thousands of people, with the equipment. I mean, you're talking everything from bed sheets and bedrooms to computers and missiles and rockets and guns and ammo and trucks and the gas forum and the electrical power plants and all this other stuff they have in uniforms. How quickly do you think that stuff really gets moved out of there? And then if we don't, we're not manning those bases who's going to come take them. Because remember, that all the people are gone. They're fighting war now. Okay, that's insane. That's why um, it's important to point out this idea out there that... It's not that there isn't another plan or a follow-on plan that may be part of this one or just be a natural course of life. It's not that those things can't exist. But this idea that they have to be there, there's a conspiracy because you're not throwing everything you have at it, is not how war works. And it's not how you remain a country. Their enemies and even some of their allies very potentially could have just rolled in and took it over. Like, they owe China a ton of money. Right? It's like this idea that China's secret pull the strings. No, they're not. They're not that kind of friends. They owe China money, just like a lot of countries owe China money, because China helped them with infrastructure and all kinds of things, building systems of debt for like 25 years, 30 years, and they helped Russia out with it too. China could have very well just went in there and said, fight your war, fuck it, we're taking, we're taking your country over, and China just got bigger. They could have done that. I don't know if they would have, but you can't just move nuclear missiles out of silos, right, and not all of those are realistically going to be, like, ICBMs aren't going to be used for Ukraine if, if they were to use nukes, which it's stupid to think they'd use nukes, but so those, somebody's going to go in and take them. I mean, 
when the Soviet Union fell apart, a lot of things that were nuclear assets, that's what was talked about, but there's other military stuff. There were in all these former Soviet bloc countries, and some of them disappeared. And countries were going in and trying to help figure out who's going to go in to secure these sites to figure out what was going to happen until these places had government. Because some of these places didn't have government. They didn't have military, they had nothing. You know, they didn't know how to keep the water on. So that's the kind of thing that, that goes down when you just like, yeah, we're going to throw everything we have. No, you're not. Nobody's, nobody can afford it. One, <laughs> nobody can afford to walk away from all that stuff. You lose your entire logistics for a war because you need those places that have all those assets, supplies, people, and training to supply the war effort. They can't do that when they're not there. And you can't just move all that stuff there. That would take forever, you know. And, and not to mention, we saw what they were doing. People saw what they were doing months ahead of time, putting all those troops on the borders like Belarus and all around Ukraine like this. They're, you're going to invade the thing. And we knew it because of Crimea. You know, that was like, what, almost 10 years prior. We knew. So if they were going to abandon all that stuff and move all those things there, even on a bigger effort, we would know. And somebody would have reacted to it to the point being this. The war wouldn't even have happened in Ukraine. The war would have been in Russia because people, we would have went in there. Somebody would have went in there and tried to take it over. So definitely not, not a thing. Another thing too is looking at, um, a question I got was about the way Russia was fighting and it looked like they would uh, go in and retreat a little bit after they fought and maybe go in and take that place again. Or maybe after a while it seemed like they were moving completely in different areas. Like they gave up on something and they're fighting the war differently. So part of that's because of how they chose to fight the war. And looking at the change of commands and generals and uh, the overall strategic plan of fighting that war. And this goes into a comment somebody had believing that because of this, it was like a baited ambush. Like they were trying to bait the West or the United States or NATO, the West, whatever you want to call it, into the war, which... There is nothing that shows that couldn't be further from the truth. The way they're fighting that war is what they did in Georgia. And then they also did that later in Crimea, which there was a treaty, a peace deal signed, which I don't have the information with me because I'm sitting in a trailer in the middle of nowhere, that they were going to leave Crimea and Ukraine alone. So when they went in and took Crimea, which happened in a couple of weeks, Georgia happened in a couple of weeks. We knew then, the West knew then, Ukraine was happening. Ukraine knew Ukraine was going to happen. That's why there was fighting in places like Donbass and stuff this whole time with Russians and Ukrainians, right? So people are thinking, well, the war started in March. No, that major operation started in March. Arguably, the war's been going on for years. So we knew then it was going to happen. Then if you look at Syria, even though they weren't taking over Syria, they were there because Syria's an ally, and they were helping Syria basically fight the Free Syria Army. And the Iranians were there too on their side. So you got to remember the Russians and the Iranians were on the different, on the opposing side of a war. We were fighting it, but we weren't fighting Syria. We were fighting ISIS. We weren't helping Syria, but we were fighting ISIS. And when the Russians were there, they were helping the Syrians and trying to get the Iranians on board, but doing some similar tactics they used before and helping them not cross lines and telling them, look, don't, they, they were as, is fine tooth is saying, don't put that checkpoint there to let's not do the operation this way or let's not take this town because the Americans, they're going to fucking kill you. And the Syrians listened most of the time. The times the Iranians didn't, they died. Because one of the things they've done and paid attention to is what it takes for us to do things. And we've proven that since like the 80s, since the era of George Bush Sr. 
we've shown throughout history where we will get involved and when, what lines we'll cross and for what reasons. And being the nation they are and being the intelligence apparatus they are, they know also what we say publicly and what it really means behind the scenes, what's really going on. They're, they're aware of all those pieces and put them together. And they're doing pretty well at it, at figuring out how to push our buttons, which I'll add on to that in another podcast, talking about something else. But they're aware of that. So part of what they do is to make sure they don't cross too many lines to piss off too many other countries, and especially the United States, because they know we will kill them. This is why, from the beginning, so many people are like, well, you don't want to get in war with Russia. And I was one of the few people who said, no, Russia doesn't want to get in war with us. And I made that comment on two or three podcasts. They do not want to get in war with us. We'll fucking destroy them. They cannot... People try to compare militaries' abilities with their capabilities, meaning they have this many people, this many guns, these type of guns, this many trucks, this many planes. Here's what we know about their planes in the past. Therefore, they're able to, no, that's not equate what they're able to do. Just because, I, I mean, I've talked about this, I've talked about this before with firearms, but I think I've even talked about those cameras. Just because a piece of equipment on paper has a certain capability does not mean the operator has that ability, not to mention how much training do they get, right? For all the bad things that have been going on in our militaries and the, the lower standards of training and things, we're still out training, outpace everybody. Nobody can stand up to us. And people talk about that like there's some sort of fallacy and it's not. The general public has no comprehension of our military capability, let alone our technological advancement and things that we're able to do. And that's beyond just standard warfare. They don't think about the effects we have on other nations, whether there's wars or not, when it comes to the financial implications and trade and sanctions, all this, and the real effect it has, and that things like sanctions take a long time, while also considering, you know, what we can really do with things like cyber. We're, I mean, we're not the dominant ones there, but stuff like that and surveillance and intelligence goes so far beyond some of these other countries. Some things are very strong and some things are not we're generally stronger in more things than any other country. Like if there was 10 things you could be good at, you know, and these other countries are doing four five and six, we're doing like eight or nine. So the other thing is, is when they go in and do this and they make these moves and then they're going forward and they take something, destroy something, destroy town, whatever they're doing, however they're doing it. And then they back off a little bit. They call for negotiation. Okay. That's a smart move. It looks like mercy. It forces you to come to the table. You're coming in in the weaker position if you accept that offer. And they're in the dominant position. It's the same idea as when countries want to get involved in negotiation to stop other wars, kind of like when China wanted to get involved in like Syria, or no, in this one. Because they want a piece of that and dictate it. If China calls for peace and Ukraine and Russia sign on to that deal and they want to go to peace talks with China, obviously Russia is an ally of China, right? But China isn't going to help negotiate that peace for Russia's benefit. They're going to do it for their own. It very well may mean that a lot of that goes to Russia's benefit because that benefits Russia, benefits them. But that's why they're going to do it. That's why we get involved in peace deals. Countries don't really give a shit about what's going on in these wars. What they care about is their own national interest and whether or not it affects them and their people. And when they go in and do negotiations, they're going to do what's best their best interests and what they call regional security based on their own interests, not anybody else, no matter how much of an ally they are. Just like we do things all the time, the UN don't want us to do, and we still do them because it's in our interests. We tell the UN, man, you're not as powerful as you think. We can tell you no. We've done it to NATO too. Um, I don't think we've done it as much. 
I think we're a little more cautious about that. But we've definitely done it to UN a few times. So it puts them in this dominant position, and it has worked. So, for example, Russia is and has been winning that war since the beginning. Ukraine has had victories, sure. Russia's had losses, sure. But most people that think Russia is losing or has been losing a significant time typically don't understand warfare. If you went and studied warfare, especially through the military or any of the military colleges, you know that this is what long-term warfare looks like. We just haven't seen it. We think we have because of the war on terror, but that wasn't typical war fighting. That wasn't frontline war fighting. That's what this is. And this is looking like long-term warfare. This has as much potential to end tomorrow as it does to go on for several more years, especially knowing that it actually has been going on for several years there. And most people aren't even paying attention to that fact. One of the reasons that they're showing that they're winning in their dominance is when they shut down those ports and all that grain in the boats weren't going anywhere, was even rotting on the boats. You should look up and see how much of that grain turns into flour and stuff and products around the world and where they fall in the export on this. It'll probably surprise you. I don't know if I did it on the podcast back then, but one of the things that was happening about a year ago is people were talking about running out of wheat and flour and not having bread, like in the United States. And it was being talked about a little bit. Some people were like, oh, no, that's doom and gloom, and some people were ignoring it. But the thing was, it was true. I mean, I saw some this bread my mom buys. You know, she doesn't buy, like, Wonder Bread, but... Whatever the bread was, it was usually around five or six bucks for two loaves. It cost a little more. And then I noticed it was like seven fifty for two loaves. And then I saw it was like ten bucks for two loaves. And then I saw you get a single loaf for like eight bucks. And then I think it went up to nine or ten for a loaf and like twelve bucks one for a couple for like a couple weeks for two loaves and went back down. Now that was a more extreme case, but I talked to other people and asked people on the internet, people that own bakeries. People are buying flour for different things. People that were doing uh, farms and stuff. Other people talked to me about, they noticed these prices going up and what was happening to it. And part of it was because that grain wasn't going, it was such a big deal. It was going to kill people around the world, like a lot of them. Remember, most of the food we eat on this planet is not animals. It's grown. And they were talking about if this grain didn't move, by the end of last year, we could have seen massive death in a lot of places or at least famine. Because of this grain not getting out of there, that's going to become flour, you know, among other things that they had. And they had to come to the, Ukraine had to come to the negotiating table to negotiate with Russia. And they didn't take the deal to end the war, whatever the, it was, because it obviously was not going to be in their benefit. And Russia probably didn't, probably didn't budge on it because they knew they were in dominant position, get there they want. But they allowed that grain to go, which showed a little mercy. Had Russia not done that, that would have been a good example of a way to bait other nations into a war, especially the West, or getting the United States to act on its own because that was going to kill a lot of people, and Russia would be responsible for that. That's at least what some people would say because of their invasion, whereas others would say it was Ukraine's fault for just not giving in. If they really wanted the West in, that would have been a prime opportunity to do it and just say, fuck all you guys. Then one of the concerns going into winter was the pipelines, and Nord Stream been shut down, and what was going on natural gas that feeds Europe. You know, Germany gets a lot of stuff from them. A lot of people owe Germany money in Europe and people dying, and there were effects of that, don't get me wrong, and there were rations and places didn't have it, and it got cold, and there was stuff that got shipped in, and kerosene and propane and things that got shipped there to help mitigate much of that. But we thought it'd be a lot worse, and there was times that they did open pipelines, and even though they said there was a shortage and they couldn't do it, they still allowed it. They used the rationing as an effect on the populace to affect their governments to affect the war. They were doing that, but they didn't just straight up keep it off the whole time. That would have got people 
involved in that war, especially in the European Union being NATO. That could be seen as an attack. Attack on one's attack on all, Article 5, right? Another example. When they go in and, and pull back and call for these negotiations, remember, they've done these in the other wars, right? So they did in Georgia. They did in Crimea. They were helping do it in Syria. It's worked. There's no reason to think it wouldn't work in Ukraine. Just like there's no reason to think any of those other countries couldn't have stood up more and fought more. They just didn't. You know, and Ukraine happened to be the one. Everybody was wrong about Russia's ability to roll through that as quickly, and it's astonished everybody now. And everybody's wrong about, you know, Ukraine, how many people in Ukraine were going to stand up a fight, although that was a much lesser effect. So they've done, they've really gone out of their way to ensure nobody comes into that war. They've ensured things keep flowing. They, they put it, take it to short of the tipping point, I would could be really dangerous. Nobody stepped into that point. Nobody think for Georgia. We definitely didn't come into Crimea when they violated that treaty. We knew they were eventually going to go into Ukraine. We didn't do much about it in Syria. We put sanctions on, but sanctions take a long time to take effect. There's a lot of other things that we did do. But nobody's really gotten that involved. And then people say, well, what about the escalation? I always try to understand this idea of escalation. This is what long-term warfare looks like, so there isn't really escalation. You know, it's like the troops. Well, they put in 400,000, 500,000 troops or whatever this year. They started right after the war talking about the conscripts they knew they were going to need. And they started 100,000. They went up to like 300,000. Several times it was talked about. You know, this is why places like Kaliningrad are constantly in the media news. Like, it's easy to find. They talk about it all the time. It's where they train a lot of these troops. Like, Kaliningrad is always there. Because uh, even David asked me about that once. And then I just sent him like, uh, you know, 10, 15 things to look at real fast. Because it, it's all over the news. And those troops were constantly talked about. So if you want to say that because we knew people were going to get killed because it was a war and a lot, hundreds of thousands got killed, a lot of those are replacements um, for the dead. The rest of them are going in replacing people to rotate them out just like we did. That's how warfare works. You just don't leave them there the whole time. It's a normal thing. That's not escalation. Replacing things is not an escalation. Rotating things is not an escalation. That's the vast majority, 95, 99% of it. Um, some of it would be new things in new places. But even then, when they put small amounts of new troops in a new area, overall their troop numbers aren't necessarily up because they took troops out of another area. They all got killed over here, and they weren't playing that game with them anymore. You know, or, or well, you know, European Union sent them. One of you guys had sent me this thing talking about uh, the machinery and tanks and stuff, weapons they were sending them, but you're like, you you said in there you admitted you didn't totally understand how wars were fought, but it, on one hand, it's like you hear about it, you see about it, it's a war, all these people die, so it's got to be a big deal. But in the same times, it doesn't seem like one or two missile systems or a couple of tanks is a big deal. And then in that case, that's what it was. Like There was countries sending them like two tanks and six tanks. Some some did more, but some of them are sending very small amounts because that's what they can offer them to do. That's the extras that they have. It's also easy to use. They can train them on it. That's part of the deals they set up because they uh, Ukraine does have security agreements with a few of the Eastern European nations, like Estonia, I don't remember all of them. They can train small amounts of people. They don't have a lot of people to operate those. They don't have a lot of battlefield commanders that can deal with that stuff. So it's small amounts of things that they needed because they've lost. Everybody keeps thinking that if you're adding, if you add in later in a war tanks or guns or training or missile systems, that it's an escalation, forgetting that things get lost and destroyed or things are needed to counteract something else. If you put in surface-to-air missiles in Ukraine to back them up, 
it would be a mistake to think surface air meniscals are an exhalation. The question would be, why do they need them? Why now? Like, it's been several months. Why didn't they need them earlier? Well, one thing we've learned is Russia doesn't know shit about air power. They don't see air power as its own maneuverable asset that could go in and crank things down and win the war in a lot of areas. And there are clearly areas like Odessa they don't want to hurt because it's a lot of Russian culture and history there. They don't want to use it a lot in Donbass and areas that they've always seen as their country. They see this as liberation from occupation, not as a hostile takeover. That's how they're seeing it. That's not political. That's not rhetoric. It's not a game playing. That's what they believe. So they want to destroy that. There's other places where, yeah, they lob a missile in and kill civilians and do these terrible things that they could have just went in and obliterated whole areas. They don't do that because, one, that's serious escalation that would get people in. Again, doing everything they can to keep other people out of that war. And, two, they don't totally understand how air power. So why were the missile systems needed later? And that's because they started using air power in other areas where they weren't before, where arguably if there was escalation, it was actually the Russian escalating the war. But then is that truly escalation or is it just a change of mission? And the way wars are fought, Let's say you have steps you're going to go through and you get through step one and achieve that and you move on to step two. Step two is part of the plan. That's not escalation. It can look like it sometimes because it's a noticeable change in what you're doing. For example, some of the reasons that people thought Russia was losing at different times is because of how much they, they tried to change their tactics and stuff and firing generals and these things. I mean, I don't think a lot of people in the U.S. said that no matter what they like the president or not over all the generals we fired. In fact, a lot of times they called them mistakes. One of the things we learned, or Russia learned anyway, was they had to update some of their ideas and beliefs about warfare. So they kept working their way trying to get to Kiev and realized that it probably wasn't necessary and started getting more into the modern idea, when, especially when they see this wheat thing, that wars are fought beyond more than just bullets. There's also beans, meaning supplies and resources. And they know that to a certain degree when you're supplying the military, but they don't think about the populace. And well, hearts and minds. They don't need to win the hearts and minds of Ukrainians. They don't like the Ukrainians. They think the Ukrainians should die. They want the hearts and minds of the Russians that are there. So then where do you go from there? Well, then you realize things like we've learned. You know, what some of the biggest things we're talking about in the war on terror in the United States, and that was the amount of money we spent. The contractors, the company that made money. You know, countries we paid money to to work there. They're doing some of the same things over there, both Russia and Ukraine. And, and figuring out that, yeah, ways wars are fought go beyond the two combatants of Russia and Ukraine. There's things like the sanctions, the deals from NATO, you know, us, the West providing stuff to Ukraine. And then I guess you could say the East or whatever you want to call them, the friends of Russia sending stuff to Russia to help fight. You know, well, why is it that it's NATO's escalation but not Russia's? You know, why are we making a big deal about a few of this and that going to Ukraine, but not a few things coming from China to Russia. Is it because people understand that China selling military stuff to Russia is correctly stated as China selling back to Russia military stuff they bought from them in the first fucking place. Part of the ways they helped Russia out financially when they didn't need the stuff. That's just extra stockpile they're able to sell. They're not able to just sell that stuff because they have such a massive army and have all this stuff sitting around, right? It's extra. They bought extra because they had the money to create deals and debts with Russia, just like they do with other nations, and now they sell back to them. And guess what they did? They made money on it. They knew what they were doing. They knew Russia was going to need this stuff, and eventually the war things weren't going to work out for them, and they knew they were going back in Ukraine just like the rest of the world because of Crimea. So a lot of these things we think are escalation are not. That's not what escalation is. This is what long-term warfare looks like. You know, that's like saying when we wanted to, 
I don't know how many times we said we had a surge in Iraq, different surge here, surge there, surge there. And people called it an escalation. I suppose at times you could argue that because it was such a noticeable change. But what they forget is some of these surges of thousands of troops followed great withdrawals of thousands of overall troops. You know, if you have, let's say you have 100 soldiers fighting in a war and you get to the point where you can pull back 50 of them. But a couple months go by and it turns out that's a little too much so you need to send 20 of them back and everybody says, it's an escalation. Why? Because 20 is more than 50? When three months ago that uh, 70 is far less than 100. That's a lot of what these escalation things are. That's why they're not really escalations and understanding. But looking at how wars are fought and what they did with the grain, they starting to realize things like it's the ebb and flow of trade and whatever makes that country work as an economy because they have to start recognizing an economy that's going to be their biggest effect. This is why the war, there's a lot of ways the war can end. Russia has already won. They've got the Donbass and whatever that other area is, a couple of them. They've not given that up. I mean, Republicans, Robert Gates and Condoleezza Rice led the charge in the United States and so many other politicians are, are parroting it now that that's, we're just identifying that as Russia's territory. Ukraine isn't really trying to contest it at all and they don't have the ability to. And many other nations just kind of signed on to the fact that that's Russia now, just like Crimea. That's just how it played out. So they've achieved all that. They, of course, want more. But no matter or not they choose to take over all of Ukraine or whatever they choose to do, which really what they're fighting now is this idea of NATO encroachment, which is will Ukraine be part of NATO or the European Union? Because being part of NATO, Russia would see as an escalation. So joining the European Union is just a stair step to being part of NATO. But after those other countries in the Arctic are going to join NATO and other things that are going on that they do not like, like they didn't like us being involved in Syria, they have to decide what they're really fighting for now, and that's the war in Ukraine now is really about NATO. It's no longer about, Ukraine. I mean, it's about Ukraine, but it's, they don't want them to be part of NATO or the European Union. They liked having Ukraine as a, you know, that was a big border to Russia. And there's a lot of history there. And then that would be gone. And they don't want that to happen. Not to mention that Ukraine was the first freely free election of democratic government for the Soviet state, which they don't like democracy among many other things that are going on there. So all that's to say is the way to win is in the South where the ports are with all the trade coming in and coming out. There's many other factors and things that are there too in the South, but that's real, the heartbeat of it. Part of it too, is that they're going to want to take Odessa if they haven't already. Again, remember I said on a previous podcast, I'm not a, not current on the news all the time, so maybe they already took Odessa. Odessa has a lot of Russian significance, cultural aspects there. They're, they're going to want that. They're probably not willing to give that up. They're really big on their history. That would be forecast. I would forecast that. I, again, I don't know if it's already happened. But forecast it is that potentially to be one of the ugliest things going on in that war is because they're unlikely to want to damage things, just like other areas. They'd be unlikely to use air power that they've started increasing which means they'd be unlikely to just lob artillery shells in there, which mean more troops on the ground, more fighting. You know, they've had to rely on these conscripts that are getting less training than other troops, Then a lot of the troops are unproven. You have things like the Wagner Group, which while I think the UK wants to declare them a terrorist group, part of what they did to fill their ranks was take prisoners, bad dudes out that are used to killing people. Not all of them, I mean, some are just regular criminals. So not all of the Wagner Group are these professionally trained guys. A bunch of them are just dirtbags. That's why they're going around doing all these terrible things, rape and stuff. 
So it would be that versus whatever's still standing in Ukraine could be one of the biggest and bloodiest street-to-street battles we've seen since probably places like Ramadi or Fallujah. That's just one possibility, hard to say. But again, this is long-term warfare. This is uh, get in tomorrow as easily as it could in several years. There's nothing really strange about it. Escalation's being looked at incorrectly. Definitely no sign there that Russia's trying to bait. If anything, they're doing everything they can, as always, to keep other people out of it so they can get what they want. They're aware where those lines are. They don't want to cross them. And we've made it very clear as a nation and as the West on what we are willing to do. And we've set precedence in that in Europe alone, fighting terrorism, as well as other activities all going all the way back to uh, Yugoslavia falling apart and the wars fought there in the Balkans to even the Middle East, to how far we're willing to get involved with other governments. And a big part of this will come down to our nation, the United States, and other nations at the time, who their leaders are, what their governments are doing, and what they think their biggest issues are. And we treat the wrong things as the biggest issues in this nation, which is part of what all this feeds into. So if you get more questions about Ukraine and Russia, let me know give me a general idea of where this is going to go, what it looks like, why it's not going anywhere. And I'm sure people are probably talking about it less and less in some places and more and more in others.